A couple of Wednesdays ago, during lectionary at lunch, my colleague Jim Veltz made some general comments about the structure of the entire book of Mark. He said that the end of chapter 7 marked the high point of the first part of the gospel in which Jesus was successful before the crowds. From that point on, however, the story, humanly speaking, begins to go south. Especially the disciples and their ability to track with Jesus is going south mightily, he said. After chapter 7, you see, the disciples are pictured as non-feeling and non-insightful and sometimes downright dumb. And that certainly is the case by the time we get to Mark chapter 9 and our text. In two separate scenes, the disciples appear confused and frightened. For the third time, Jesus talks to them about his death and resurrection. But they did not understand what he was saying, and they were afraid to ask him. They did not understand and were afraid to ask. If you've ever been in that situation, you know how helpless the disciples felt. It's like taking a physics test after you spent the night reading Sports Illustrated. And I know what that feels like. <laughs> and then in Capernaum, Jesus catches them with their pants down. He asks them what they were talking about on the way. Mark tells us that on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Now at first, it sounds like a silly argument, a childish game of one-upsmanship. It seems even more ridiculous, given that before this, among other things, Jesus had fed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread. He had healed a blind man. He had been transfigured before three of them, and he had healed a boy with an unclean spirit. Who was the greatest? One can only imagine what kind of arguments the disciples were concocting in order to make a case for themselves, I am assuming. Again, the disciples seem to be far from the kingdom of God. They don't seem to have a clue about who this person that they are following is or what he has come to do. Their behavior is just so obviously inappropriate that it is quite easy for us to distance ourselves from this text and even begin to wonder how it applies to us. But maybe we shouldn't be so hasty to dismiss the behavior of the disciples. Because I think that this kind of argument happens all the time, even or maybe especially among pastors and professors. You men who, as many of your faithful lay people will observe, are some of the closest people to Jesus that they know. You in, who in your vocation, they say, are most like the disciples, and some would even say most like Jesus himself. Now, I predict that these kinds of comments and observations about you will become more convincing to you and even more expected by you the more people keep praising you for your work and for your self-sacrifice. And if you are at all competent, they will do this kind of complimenting quite regularly. And believe me, you begin to look forward to it and draw validation from it. It is always nice when someone notices and disappointing when they don't. Pastor, that was a great sermon. Of course, you're a good preacher. It's nice that someone notices your artistry in the pulpit. 
Pastor, I know it was an inconvenience, but that visit to my mom meant the world to her. Ah, my member appreciates my dedication, and now even her mother loves me. Pastor, look how the church is growing under your leadership. Ah, I know it's the Holy Spirit, but I also know others would not have been as successful. In fact, I'm a little worried about what might happen to this church when I leave. I see this great irony. You are praised for the very thing Christ seems to want you to do. Think about others. Give them the good news. Sacrifice your own desires for their sake. That's just being a good pastor for sure. And you even get this great feedback that you are on the right track. You are doing just what you are supposed to be doing. You see, they are arguing. They are making the case that you are the greatest pastor. And in your heart of hearts, unbeknownst to any other human being, something you would never admit to out loud, that argument doesn't sound so ridiculous at all. Your selfless work becomes a source of pride. The irony, all these things that you do for God become great things in your mind, marking you as a cut above the rest. It is true, as Luther says, that arrogance attends the slightest success. Something in our hearts happens, and we can't help believing our own press. When someone says something, we want more, more and better praise. When no one says anything, we are disappointed in what we don't get and maybe even resentful. So here comes Jesus and gives the disciples some instruction, which seems rather benign. But the more I read it, the more uncomfortable I became. If anyone wants to be first, he will be last of all and a servant of all. The more I read it, the more I knew I was in trouble. If anyone wants to be first, he will be last of all and a servant of all. The desire to be first is itself a killing disqualification. God holds that against you. I can't control my wish to be better than my brothers. Those thoughts come to me uninvited. They seep unwanted into the basement of my heart. As soon as I mop them up, the muddy waters inexorably reappear. You can't help your wants. Surely you can't be held accountable for your desires. Can that be the gourd that poisons the entire pot of stew? It is scarcely imaginable. And you a pastor, a perfectly good pastor. You are as bad or worse than anyone else after all. That's a humbling thought. And Jesus' words about receiving children didn't help me feel better about myself either because there are plenty of times when I didn't do that. And that's really where the text left me today. Uneasy. Uneasy that things between me and my God had gone south mightily. Uneasy about the nature of God's judgment, fearing that he will dig up the corpses that I have buried in my heart. That's where the text left me today. But I can't say amen. Not yet anyway, because you see, that's not where Jesus left me. Jesus, who was first in every way and deserved it, still did not wish glory for himself. He did not count equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, he made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant, a suffering servant as Isaiah describes him. He became last of all and a servant of all. 
He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it is his obedience, his selflessness, his humility, his work that pleased his father. And so his father exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. First place, all glory to the risen Lord. And now you see the resurrected and exalted Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, this one who endured the Father's judgment and conquered death, did not, even for a second, forget about you. He did all this for you. He was wounded for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities. And with his stripes, you are healed. And that means that even your sinful desires will not be held against you. You are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Son, the beloved Son, pleads your case on, your own, on his behalf, offers his lifeblood as the price. And for his sake, his Father wipes your slate clean. The Father is happy to do this for his son, his beloved one. He delights to do his will, and his will is to save you, and that he has accomplished. He has guaranteed it in your baptism. Believe it and rejoice that Christ has called you as his own. In spite of yourself, your place at Christ's side is secure at the resurrection of the dead. You will reign with him as kings and queens, with clean hearts and in great joy, loved as the sons and daughters that you are. Amen. Now may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which passes all our understanding, keep your hearts and minds together in Christ Jesus. Amen.